0: Here is a shopping list that a wife recently gave her husband. Okay? No, it wasn't from Stephanie to me. So don't... Okay? Tell me, how do you think the husband interpreted this list? You know how he interpreted this list? He read those numbers as the quantity of what he was supposed to get. Do you think he interpreted it correctly? No, he did not. The wife simply meant to list the items numerically. They now have a lot of salt. Salt in their home. You know, uh, perhaps more than any time of the year, December and January is when we make a lot of lists, Uh, Christmas lists, shopping lists, uh, endless to-do lists, and then come January, a list of New Year resolutions, right? In fact, I'm sure maybe some of you already have put pen to paper and created some kind of list of areas you want to improve upon or grow. And, and I want to say, you know what? Such lists, such as a New Year's resolution list, it's commendable. It, it is good To have an agenda for your life, to have an agenda for what you want to achieve and what you want to become, especially here at the start of a new year, for us to take a moment to think about, okay, what's going to be the agenda for my life in 2023? However, this New Year's morning, I want to invite you to do something different, Before we take another step into 2023, I want to invite you to consider God's agenda for your life. Indeed, I just don't want you to consider it, if I'm putting all my cards on the table. What I really want you to do, and what I really want of myself, is to know God's agenda and to fully embrace it this year in 2023. Because, you see, much like this husband, who I found on the Internet, (laughs) much like this husband in the shopping list, I think Christians can often, please hear me, misinterpret God's agenda for their life. Especially, friend, in the midst of hardships and suffering. And listen, far worse than bringing home seven large containers of salt. Misinterpreting God's agenda for your life will bring with it heartache and pain. We not only need to know God's agenda, but embrace it. So so what is that? What is God's agenda for those who belong to him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the the good news is we don't have to guess. The Bible is not silent on this matter at all. Indeed, there are many, many passages that have been written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that answer this very question. Yet perhaps none communicate it more vibrantly than our text this morning, Mark chapter 4. So if you would, I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. That's page 839 in that paperback Bible. In Mark chapter 4, we find our Lord Jesus teaching A full day of teaching, he's teaching in parables, and many of the parables, almost all of them, have to do with hearing and obeying God's Word. Well, at the end of a long day of teaching in Mark chapter 4, Jesus has been teaching all day in parables, Uh, Jesus invites his disciples to do something. He invites them to get in a boat with him and to go across to the other side. You can imagine, I mean, after a long day of teaching, let's get in the boat, let's go to the other side. And it's in this boat that the Lord Jesus has one more important truth that he wants his disciples and us to learn. And I'm going to argue the truth we learn here in this passage, it's a truth that echoes all throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. Here we find God's agenda for your life and my life, especially in the midst of hardships. So please follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. And what I want you to do is uh, put yourself in the narrative. Really imagine what it's like to be there Uh, with Jesus and the disciples. So we read this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now, I'm just pause here for a second. If the Son of God incarnate told you, hey, let's get in your car and go to Kroger, where do you think you're going to end up at the end of that car ride? He says to the disciples, Hey, we're going to go over on the other side. It's right for us to assume that we're with the Son of God. We're going to get there, right? Okay, let's just file that away. Next verse. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, what it means, just as he was, I understand that to mean just as he was after teaching all day. Talk to my kids. I preach once. I get home. I want to take a nap. Okay? Jesus has been teaching all day. Parables. And many of the people haven't been getting them. So I understand this to be just as he was in his humanity, Jesus is tired. Also in his humanity, if Jesus' lungs got full of water, he would die. So he's tired. They take him just as he was in the boat. Side with him. Verse then 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now put yourself again into the disciples' shoes. This is the first, there's three greats in this text. Here's the first one. A great windstorm. Now I don't I don't like to I don't like the beach. I don't like to sail. Uh, Maybe you do, but I can imagine uh, what it must have been like to get onto a boat. It's calm, but then all of a sudden a great storm comes upon. I mean, imagine, winds in your face, water splashing in your air, water splashing everywhere. The boat is filling up. And notice what we read next about Jesus, the next verse. But he, Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And notice what the disciples do next. And they woke him and said to him, and I don't think they whispered this to him, they said, Teacher! And notice, notice their response. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Here's the second great. And I want you to notice, the wind and the waves obey all the way right away, don't they? The Son of God commands it, and what do they do? They obey and now all of a sudden, there's a great calm. And now this is where I think the whole narrative is going. And here's the point that Jesus is trying to get at here in verses 41 and 40. He says this. And Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? They almost just drowned it to death. Drowned to death. And the Son of God says to them, "Why are you so afraid?" And then He says, "This. Have you still no what? What do you say? Faith. Christ's concern for His disciples was what? Faith. And then in verse forty-one, here's the third great." And they were filled with great fear and said one to another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's good word. Amen? Amen. I don't want to unnecessarily bring up a controversial topic. But here it (laughs) goes. Daylight savings. (laughs) Can we talk about it? Daylight savings will begin in a couple of months on March 12th. That means no more pitch black, dark early nights at 5 p.m., right? Now, in addition to setting your clocks ahead one hour, what else are you supposed to do when daylight savings begins? Kim Leatherman. Give it up for Kim <laughs> Leatherman. Our, our safety aficionado. That's right, Kim Leatherman, thank you. As, as Kim Leatherman and all the fire departments will tell you, every time daylight savings begins and ends, you're to replace the batteries in your smoke detectors. So, so twice a year, You're supposed to replace the batteries in your smoke detector. It's to be a seasonal replacement. Well, Faith, I want to suggest to you that in our text this morning, Jesus is calling all Christians to make not a seasonal replacement, but a spiritual one. And know what that spiritual replacement is. It's this, and that he wants us to replace fear with faith. The disciples have fear. That's evident. And he rebukes them because he wants them to have what? Faith. And this I'm going to suggest is God's agenda for his people. He wants us as followers to replace our fear with faith, trust, confidence in him. In this passage, God's agenda is mediated through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, and in this text, He is counseling His disciples. And it's very clear what Jesus wants, isn't it? I mean, the point of the whole passage I want to suggest is in verse 41. The disciples want relief. They want relief from the storm But what does Jesus want? What's God's agenda for his disciples in the storm? Jesus wants them not to doubt him. He wants them to trust him. And indeed, Jesus verbally confronts their lack of faith, does he not? As I said, the disciples have fear. He wants them to have faith. And to be clear, this is so important that you hear me when I say this. It is not that Jesus wants his disciples to trust him for what they want him to do. No, Jesus wants his disciples to trust him for what he said he was going to do. Very, very big difference. Like that husband in the grocery store list, friend, don't misunderstand this text Don't misunderstand this passage to teach that if you believe hard enough, if you trust hard enough, if you believe long enough, God is going to give you what you want Him to give you. He's going to give me what I want. I just have to have faith. No, God's agenda for His disciples in this text and for us today is to replace our fear with faith. We're going to trust Him for what He said He's going to do. We would deepen our trust in God and His Word and entrust over to Him our desires to replace our fear with faith. So here's the question I want us to consider this this New Year's Day. How can we do this? And I hope you can see, and I'm going to hopefully tie it up for us in a moment here, I've chosen this text to, to tie in with our theme for this year, obeying in faith. We want to obey God, follow His commands, and to do so in faith, trusting Him. And I believe this text shows us how we can replace fear with the kind of faith that Christ desires. If you're going to do this, friend, then I'm going to suggest that you need to change your thinking in three areas. And here's the first if we're going to have the kind of faith Christ wants of his disciples, the first area of thinking that you need to change is about storms. Look again at verses 34 through 38. So, again, it's the end of the day. He says, And on that day, when the evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd. They took him with him in the boat just as he was. And notice, in other boats were with him. So is their boat the only boat that's out there in the great storm? No. There are other boats experiencing the same thing. Important in a second here. And then, verse 37 And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was asleep in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In uh, 1958, Mao Zedong, I, I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly, he ordered the extermination of every sparrow in China. He called it the, quote, "the Four Pests campaign." As part of the Chinese Communist Party's notorious Great Leap Forward, the public health effort for the elimination of disease, carrying all of diseases carrying rats and flies. Malaria-ridden mosquitoes and sparrows, which ate grain, seed, and fruit. He wanted China to be completely eliminated of all these things. So, urged on by their leaders, this is what the people of China did. They shot sparrows from the sky by the thousands, and they hunted down and destroyed their nests. Children would bang pots and pans at sparrows resting in trees, chasing them until the little birds plummeted from the heavens, overcome by exhaustion. Listen this Within a year, the sparrow population in China had been decimated, pushed nearly to extinction. Now at first it appeared that the plan had worked. But the problem was sparrows eat more than just grains and fruit you know what else they eat? Insects, including a species of the short-horned grasshopper, commonly known as locusts. And with their natural predator gone, you know what happened? The locust population skyrocketed, skyrocketed and hordes of ravenous grasshoppers swept through the countryside. Listen to this devouring everything in their path and contributing significantly to the great Chinese famine. By 1961, tens of millions of Chinese peasants would be dead, starved to death as a result of the famine. You see, as many people in China now state they refer to those sparrows as quote the pests we need the pests we need faith I want to suggest to you that in a very similar way storms hardships trials of various kinds as James says They are the pests we need. For they do something far more important than kill locusts. You know what the storms of life do, friend? They reveal what is in our souls. They apply pressure and squeeze out what is inside of us. And why is that needed? It's needed, friend, please hear me. It's needed, Christian, so you and I can grow in Christ's likeness. Storms reveal what we are truly treasuring in our heart. And notice what's being squeezed out of the disciples' hearts in this storm <laughs> and unbelief. Faith, whose idea was it to get in the boat? And did Jesus not say, let us go across to the other side? And if the Son of God incarnate says, let's go to the other side, where do you think you're going to end up when that journey is over? The other side, right? And you know what? I bet the disciples thought they believed that in verse 35. Everything was sunny and calm. We're going to the other side. I believe they thought, they did. but you know what? They didn't. They lacked faith. So the Son of God leads them into a storm to reveal their lack of faith. The storm was needed to squeeze that unbelief out of them so it could be revealed. What a gift! What a gift that storm was to the disciples. For without it, they would have had a weak, weak faith. You see, faith, if we're going to replace fear with faith, then we need to change our thinking about storms. Specifically, we must understand that they are from God for our good. I mean, this is writ large over the entire New Testament. As we're going to read through the New Testament this year as a church, you're going to see this over and over and over again. Indeed, this is why James calls Christians to count it all joy when they face trials of various kinds. So, so what would it look like for you in 2023 if you changed your thinking about storms? if you viewed them actually, no, they are the pests we need. I need them so that God can do his pruning work in my life. Well, you know what it would look like if you changed your thinking about storms? You'd stop grumbling and complaining in 2023. Friend, if those closest to you say you grumble and complain then you have an unbiblical view of trials and hardships, and that needs to change. Indeed, does not the Apostle Paul directly command Christians not to grumble? What does he write in Philippians 2.14? Let's say together. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I'm not, I'm not a Greek scholar but I take that phrase, all things, to mean all things. So, faith. Change your thinking about storms. St- stop grumbling and complaining about the hard circumstances and obstacles you encounter stop complaining when things don't go your way because you know what ultimately you know who all your grumbling is against who god you're you're complaining against god now this of course doesn't mean we don't express sorrow and grief over painful hurtful situations and circumstances nor does it mean that we don't have righteous anger when our Savior is mocked. But what it does mean is I view the storms, the hardships of life, as coming from the hand of a loving Father who wants to use them to make me more like Jesus if I'll allow Him. This is what I want you to do. To to help change your thinking about storms, You know what we need to do when the storms of life come upon us? Here's the question we need to ask. What's being squeezed out of me? What's being squeezed out of me in this difficult job? What's being squeezed out of me as I relate with this difficult family member? What's being squeezed out of me as I suffer pain? What's being squeezed out of me when my children break my heart? What's being squeezed out of me when the storms of life come upon me? And if what you see that's being squeezed out of you is sin, praise the Lord for Him to reveal that to you and confess and repent of it and receive His full forgiveness. There's one more observation about storms that I want to draw your attention to. and Notice what we read at the end of verse 36 when the text says, other boats were with them. Something else that needs to change in our thinking when it comes to storms is that we are never alone. Often, whenever we experience hardships or suffering, we can be tempted to believe that, you know what, my situation is unique. My suffering is, is abnormal. It's unique. And because it's unique, we can work in our hearts that, you know what, this absolves me from having to please Jesus in this moment. However, this passage reminds us that our suffering is, as Paul writes, common unto man. So first, to replace fear with faith, we have to change our thinking about storms. But then second, we need to change our thinking about God. Look at verses 38 and 39 again. I'm going to back up in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. Their their feet are wet, maybe up to their shins. It's dark. It's loud. There's lightning. Verse 38. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, to Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Uh, we've, we've been meeting at Gingerwood's since day one. And one Sunday, many, many, many years ago, uh, once the service had started, a, a church member was, was walking in this back hall by the nursery. And as she was walking by, there up against the, the glass in the door was one of my sons. His face pushed up against the glass of the nursery door, and with a distraught look on his face, as the woman was walking by, my son looked at her and said, help me. Help me. <laughs> and I think it was Terry who might have mentioned that to me. And I don't, know, I don't know which child it was, but she was walking by. There he is in the nurse room. He's like, help me. <laughs> now, in that moment, you know what my young son was thinking? He was thinking lots of things, no doubt. You know, he was thinking, one of them, what he was thinking was this. He was thinking, my dad doesn't love me because he put me here. Help me. Help me. Notice we see the same sentiment coming from the disciples in verse 39, don't we? For what do they say once they awake Jesus from his sleep? They say, do you not care that we are perishing? And you know what's behind that statement? Doubt. Unbelief. They doubted that the Son of God actually loves and cares for them. And, Christian, do we not often think the same thing ourselves when going through a hardship or trial? When suffering, do we not think that, you know what? God doesn't care about me. He is not good. He is not powerful. And he is not wise. this is why I want to encourage us to change our thinking about God because of this. Listen to me. What the disciples thought about God when it was sunny and calm, they brought with them into the storm. And what is clear is they expect that care and love equals removing suffering. Care and love equals removing suffering. And friend, do we not think the same? God, remove that difficult spouse. R- remove this, this miserable boss. Remove this painful condition. That, is that not what we understand to be care in our minds? You know, as, as your pastor, I know some of you are in a terrible storm right now. For some of you, that looks like intense physical pain. For others, it's a really hard or strained marriage. For others, it's unemployment or broken relationships. And, Christian, in the storm, ask yourself what do I think about God? I just want to press in here for a moment, Christian. Do you believe that God does not care or love you? If, Christian, if if this is what's kind of going through your mind, as you look at your circumstances and you come to the conclusion that God doesn't love you, Scripture would, would call me to ask you this important question, and that is, what do you believe God owes you? Seriously. What do you believe God owes you? Biblically, there's only one correct answer. And that is eternal judgment in hell for your sin. However, Christian, that's not what you've been given in Christ. Amen? Christian, on the cross, Christ has forever, ever removed any doubt that He loves you. For He saved your soul for all eternity so you would have a resurrected body on a new heavens and a new earth for a gazillion, bazillion years. This is why Paul calls whatever we're going through this light momentary affliction. It does not compare to the eternal weight of glory that He has in store for us. Let me ask you, as we're reading this, this account in Mark chapter 4, Doesn't it sound strangely familiar? Anyone? Ferris, Bueller, anyone? Does does this not sound... Have we not heard it before? I have. You know what it sounds a lot like? Who? Jonah. In fact, I believe Mark intentionally... Deliberately laid out this account using language that is parallel, if not almost identical, to the language of the famous Old Testament account of Jonah. I mean, just consider the similarities. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat, and both boats were overtaken by a storm. I mean, the descriptions of the storm are almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep, and in both stories, the sailors, those in the boat, woke up the sleeper and said, we're going to die. And in both cases, there was a miraculous divine intervention and the sea was calmed. But that's not all. Furthermore, in both stories, notice, the sailors then become even more terrified than they were before the storm was calmed. Remember, there's three greats in Mark. The last great is at the end two almost identical stories with just one difference. In the midst of the storm, Jonah said to the sailors, what? There's only one thing you can do. Throw me over. If I perish, you're going to live. Kill me so you can live. And they throw him overboard. Which doesn't happen in the story of Jesus. Or does it? I actually think Mark is showing that the stories are actually, aren't actually different when you stand back and look at it with the rest of the story of Jesus in view. I, for example, consider what we read in Matthew. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. What Jesus meant was that he would be the one who would calm all storms and put an end to brokenness and death. And how did Jesus accomplish that? He accomplished it through the cross. On the cross, friend, please hear me, Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of God's judgment. Whereas Jonah just took his own condemnation upon himself, what did Jesus Christ do? Steve articulated during communion, he he took on our sin, he bore our sin, he became sin for us, so that through his death and resurrection, we would have forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, amen? Friend, please hear me. In light of such a great sacrifice, you can never say, God doesn't love you. Furthermore, you know why you can also believe that God is wise and good and that he cares for you in the midst of storms? Because as this passage in Mark testifies in the rest of Scripture, please hear me, God is faithful to his promises. As the sovereign Lord who commands the wind and sea, he is faithful to his promise, Christian, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Friend, no matter what storm you're going through, because of your union with Christ, Jesus is in the boat with you. Amen? Amen. What comfort. He's in the boat with you and as sin and what's in your heart is being squeezed out of you through the storm, Jesus is right there to lovingly say, friend, confess and repent of that. I forgive you. I love you to make you walk in righteousness. Christian, do you need to change your thinking about God? But then finally, to replace fear with faith, you have to change your thinking about needs, what you think you need. Look at how it ends. Verses 40-41. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said one to another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now again, I just want you to consider for a moment what Jesus is doing in this text. Uh, imagine for a moment, uh, we, we had a scare once in, in our life. One of our sons, Daniel, almost drowned. Uh, Basil actually saved his life, so you owe Basil a lot. But, <laughs> but um, I think that was, that, was, that was a terrifying moment for us. Terrifying. Imagine that the disciples are going through the same thing. The boat is full. They, they almost drown. And what does he ask them? He doesn't say, oh, come here. It, it's not an arm of comfort. He looks at them and says, why are you so afraid? What would come out of your soul if you almost died by drowning? And Jesus asks you, why are you so afraid? And then he adds, have you still no faith? These are strong words. And I believe they press us to consider what is our greatest need. Speaking of, of Daniel, my son Daniel, he loves fans. He loves fans. We got tons of fans. He's building humidifiers in our house. It's great. It's with the dry weather. And he he recently purchased a small fan from the company called Vornado. And do you know what the tagline is? Do you know what the motto is for the company Vornado? It's this comfort should be constant. That's their tagline. Comfort should be constant. Faith, I would submit to you that our default is that when we consider what our greatest need, I think it's this. We believe our greatest need is comfort. What we want in storms is relief from suffering. We want out of the hard marriage. We want out of the difficult job. We want out of the physical pain. We want relief. I mean, the disciples sure did. But faith, what does Jesus want? In the face of them drowning to death, what does Jesus want? He wants them not to doubt Him. What is my greatest need? Is my greatest need, if I'm the disciples, is my greatest need that I don't drown? Or is my greatest need that I don't doubt my Lord? He said we're going to the other side. Do I believe him? Do I trust him? Our great need is not relief from suffering, but redemption through suffering. As I mentioned previously in our worship service, our theme for 2023 is obeying in faith. And I chose this text because I believe it clearly reveals God's agenda for our lives. And that is that we replace fear with faith. That is, we would have a deep trust in the Lord so that we would obey Him. Because look at how the story ends. What do the disciples say in verse 41? Have your eyes fall there one time. They say what? Even the wind and sea what? Obey Him. You know what the implication is? And we didn't. The wind and the sea obeyed Him, but we did not follow Him and trust Him when He said He's going to take us to the other side. And now notice, after this is being squeezed out of them, they see this unbelief in their heart, and notice there's the the final great of this text their fear of drowning was replaced with a greater fear of having their lack of faith revealed. What would it look like for you, Christian, for you to really believe that your greatest need is not to be escaping from the drowning ship or the sinking ship, but my greatest need is I need to trust the promises and the word of my God. How, how would we talk differently to one another in our community groups? How would we talk differently at prayer requests? I'll give you one thing. Instead of saying, hey, I have a real difficult job or uh, this boss is really difficult, would you pray for me? Pray that things go well. It's a great prayer. I'm not knocking that. Instead pray, I have a difficult boss right now. Pray that God would use us to make me more like Jesus. I'm having a hard time in my marriage right now. Pray that God would make me more like Christ through it. That I would lean into him and he would refine me to make me more like the Savior. That's a a prayer of redemption through the suffering. The disciples wanted relief from it. Jesus says, no, I want to make you, I want to grow you in your faith through it. Faith, I don't know what 2023 has in store for you, no matter what might come our way I pray that we faith community church would be like those in Hebrews 11 and it would be said of us by faith they obeyed amen let's pray